Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Today we're continuing our series, His Story, Lessons from the Old Testament, and I've entitled our message today, The Big Choice. It has to do with our relationship to the world around us. In the 1950s, I was not alive then, by the way, and I'm not lying about that. In the 1950s, there was a TV program called I Love Lucy. Of course, many of us saw, the, uh, saw all the reruns for decades, and of course, the stars were Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, and I believe they were a married couple, correct? Yes, thank you. They were a married couple, but you never saw them in bed on set because there were actually standards for Hollywood as it related to human sexuality on TV. So even though they were portraying a married couple and they were actually married in real life, if you watched I Love Lucy and you saw any kind of a bedroom scene, you'll remember there were two twin beds on set. And that was not unusual. Other uh, programs like that were the same. So you'd never see them in bed together making out or anything like that. That's why it took so long for many of us to figure out where babies came from. <clears throat> I think we would all agree that that has changed exponentially in the culture. And, and it has not happened without some forethought and intentionality. Here's one example that you have heard of. In a blog post, author Jonathan Van Maren writes, it wasn't until I was doing the research for my book, The Culture War, that I began to come across analysis highlighting a darker aspect of the TV show Friends Legacy. Now, many of you probably watched Friends. Many of you probably enjoyed Friends. It's well-written. It's funny. It's endearing. It pulls you in. And that's kind of the problem. The darker aspect of the TV show Friends Legacy that I'd never considered before. Ashley McGuire of the Institute for Family Studies wrote, in reality, Friends was a decade-long Hollywood experiment in testing the moral limits of Americans and desensitizing viewers to harmful sexual behavior. The show made a punchline out of casual sex and hookups and portrayed them as consequence-free. No STDs, no trips to the abortion clinic, no staring at their phones, waiting for the one-night stand to call, just a good laugh over the last condom in the apartment and a porn marathon. TV sitcoms tell stories. Stories have storytellers. The cast and crew of Friends wanted to push the envelope, knowing that TV is a frequently uh, a feedback loop that not only reflects culture, but also drives, shapes, and informs culture, tries to change it. Friends was the second show on TV to depict a same-sex wedding, decades before the landmark Supreme Court case in the U.S. of Oberfell uh, versus Hodges, and a year before Ellen DeGeneres famously came out. Ross Geller's wife in the show leaves him for a woman, and he marries her. He walks down the aisle after her bigoted and homophobic father declines to do so. And when they did this, they were expecting this massive backlash. NBC was braced for a backlash after that aired, expecting thousands of angry phone calls. They got two. Now, I'm not, this is not a sermon about gay marriage, but that is how values change 
over time in a culture. And the Bible calls it worldliness. When a culture moves and Christians, or the people of God, feel the need to continue to adapt to the culture and fit in with the culture, we call it worldliness. It comes from the uh, Greek word cosmos, sort of the arrangement of things. David Wells asks, what is worldliness? I like this because I would say it's the philosophical system of the age organized against the kingdom of God. You're not going to remember that one, are you? I like his definition. It is that system of values in any given age which has as its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong, and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. So worldliness is simply when the culture around us is able to sort of displace our values, biblical values, with its own, and we become like the world. Now we are at the end, I I like to think we're at the end, I'm not sure that there is an end, but we are... Some of us would like to say, and those of you who are a little older than me, being I'm only 41, uh, but some of you who are older than me have seen this progression for a longer period of time. We're at the end of a long run of trends away from the cultures that dominated the Western world historically. So we just don't live in the world we lived in 40 or 50 years ago. It's just true. It's not the same world uh, at all. When I was young, in fact, public institutions rarely went against the views of the family when it came to moral issues. So when I was young, even the public schools supported what we would historically call Judeo-Christian family values. The public schools would not push against that, nor would government institutions push against what was sort of the culture of the West reflecting the Judeo-Christian ethic. That has changed. Now in many, in many ways, we're sort of at war with public institutions to defend our values. In fact, it's so pervasive that worldliness trends are starting to conflict with each other, and I know I'm getting pretty confused out there because now it's like one liberal idea conflicts with another liberal idea, and the culture can't even figure out which one to grab onto anymore because they're actually in conflict with each other. And I would give you an example of that. I just don't want to get the fruit thrown at me yet. But we've been in this series history and we're coming to an interesting part of it but we we do just a little review here we've gone through uh, Adam and Eve and the fall so sin's interest into the human family the consequences of that then we went through Noah and the flood as history in the Old Testament ended as history uh, in geology and paleontology talking about the reality of the Noahic flood then we went to where peoples again spread across the earth the separation of people and languages at Babel and then we got last week to chapter 12 which is there's this key shift in salvation history people are now spread across the earth and God says I'm going to give a gift of salvation to the world and the best way to do that is I'm going to raise up a nation to be a light to the rest of the world and so eventually that's going to be Israel and it's intended to reflect God in the world, to, to know the true God, to follow the true God, to be miraculously blessed on this small piece of arid land between multiple continents. 
and to succeed in such ways because they're obeying God that he will lift them up and all nations of the world will get to know him. That was the idea. It didn't always work out that way. But he had to start with a man. So it's the call of Abraham. He was a gift to the world. Abraham would become a nation that would be this light. That nation would also give us a Messiah, a Savior, which is a fulfillment of Genesis 3. The seed of the woman will come back and rescue humanity. So that's going to come through Israel now. But the author also wants us to learn from these people like Abraham and their journeys of faith. He wants us to to watch their lives, to see what they experience, and to learn from the growth in their faith. So it's not just about giving us a nation. It's about learning from these patriarchal figures, as they're called, in Genesis. And in those journeys that we're going to look at today are a couple of mini-narratives. Abraham and Lot. Lot is his nephew, their relationship. And what happens here with this history of Sodom and Gomorrah, sort of the worldliness and immorality that they were next to as they uh, sort of lived in that area as well. So I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 13. It's on page 8 in, your, in the Bible right in front of you, page 8 in your Old Testament. We're going to see this interesting story between Abram and Lot. Now remember, they're relatives. Abram's brother uh, gave birth to Lot, or I should say his wife gave birth to Lot. So Lot is a nephew. The brother had died. Lot came with Abram into this part of uh, the world. And so we've got their story as they both are very successful individuals. They're both very wealthy, and there's not room for both of them to be by each other anymore. So chapter 13, verse 1, Abram went up from Egypt, remember there had been a famine there, to the Negev, think of that as southern Israel, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot, his nephew, with him. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called in the name of the Lord. Now, Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land uh, as well. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, and it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent, came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, where true in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So this is an interesting story, and it's just fascinating as it relates to this issue of worldliness. So it's incredibly, uh, incredibly applicable. Three points, three simple points that we have here and as we continue on this narrative through the chapters of Genesis. 
a shepherd's quarrel becomes a moral lesson about proximity to the world. So we're at a point in Abram's life where he's amassed great wealth. Now, he was probably always rich. I suspect his dad was wealthy. They give the impression they were always sort of a wealthy clan. So he's probably always been rich. God has promised to bless him even more. And much of the wealth was in livestock. It says he's got a lot of livestock. He's got silver. He's got gold. For Abraham's livestock to thrive, they need to have a massive amount of available pasture. So they would rotate through these tracts of land throughout the month, and the shepherds would you know, probably pull out their, you know, their iPads or whatever, their cell phones, and they'd sort of mark down where they've been the last week, where they're going this week, where they're going the next week, because when you pasture animals, they eat the grass down. If you're in a very arid or semi-arid part of the country, they really eat the grass down, and it takes a lot longer for it to grow back. So they would have been rotating all of these sheep and, and cattle and camels and so on on this part of the Negev which is southern Israel. So that's where they settled when they came back from Egypt. It's sort of southern Canaan or Israel, east of the Dead Sea. That would be this area called the Negev. Now it's probable, and scholars believe this is true, it's probable that Israel, that part of the world, might have been more fertile in ancient times than it is today, but it was still a fairly arid and dry uh, part of the world and part of the country. And also the editor of scripture, who we believe is Moses, we believe he put the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible together, is making the point that they're not alone. So in verse 7, as they're starting to talk about them having a hard time sort of being together because Abram's got a lot of livestock and so does Lot, he says, now the Canaanite and the Parasite were dwelling then in the land. And he's not making any kind of a moral point about the Canaanites and the Parasites. All he's saying is, these guys have a lot of competition for pasture. That's the only reason he says that. He's just setting up the problem between Abraham and Lot. They're not alone. God said he was going to give Abraham this land. It hasn't happened yet. Right now they're in this area. They're nomads. They're the aliens there. They've come into this new area. They've got a lot of, you know, they've got a lot of men that work for them and so on. They've got a lot of wealth. But they're not alone. They're being pressed in on all sides by the Perizzites and the Canaanites. But Abraham's nephew, Lot, is actually his greatest competitor for pasture. So things start heating up between their herdsmen. Agreements about water and pastures are not being kept. And so Abraham tried to work it out. He sets up a meeting. He invites his nephew to this meeting. They're on the high country, and so they can sort of see in all directions. And Abraham says to Lot, you know, take your pick. It's, it's a big land. Yes, there are other people here as well, but it's a big land. Take your pick. You go right, I'll go left. You go left, I'll go right. It doesn't matter. You choose whatever you want. Now, actually, if you're reading commentaries on this, there are scholars who believe that Abraham was actually wrong to do this. I think those scholars are ill-informed. I think they're reading some things into the text they shouldn't be reading. I don't think the Bible says that, but this is what they're thinking. They would say for Abraham to offer this land to Lot is sort of being flippant with God's promise because God has promised him the land. And so if he's offering it to Lot right now, he's taking the land that God had pledged to him and he's giving it away over sheep. Now I think that's flawed thinking because any place that Lot can see, any place that Lot can go with his flocks is eventually going to be given to Abraham's progeny when they become a nation. And so I, I don't think there's anything wrong with what Abraham is doing here. He's simply trying to create a temporary workforce realignment. 
He's just trying to get along. This isn't about who's going to get the land eventually. So the two men stand on a high mount overlooking southern Canaan, southern Israel now. Lot looks east, west, north, south. To the east was the Jordan Valley. In fact, beyond the Jordan Valley, you could probably see the mountains of Moab in that part of the country. And it was beautiful. Because especially back then, it was incredibly lush. It was so lush that sheep could probably be fenced there instead of rotated on depleted pastures. I mean, it just would, it would grow. There was water there. And so it was the best land you could possibly find for pasturing animals. But it's interesting, that was not news to them. That wasn't news. It didn't just start being lush in the Jordan Valley. They both knew this. But for some reason, neither of them in the time there, not that they'd been there long, but neither had made a move east. And I think the author makes very clear why neither had chosen to do that before. And this is, when you're reading narrative literature, and by narrative literature I mean, I mean history written as narrative. When you're reading narrative literature in the scriptures, sometimes you get editorial comments by, by the author. And here's one of those times where you get that. And when you get that, when you're looking for authorial intent, all right, when you're looking for authorial intent, which is what you always want to find when you look at every page of scripture, it doesn't matter. you're not looking for what you can pull out of the text and make apply to your life. You're looking for what the author intended for you to pull out of the text because that's God's word. So when you're looking for the author's intent in narrative literature, sometimes you'll get these really special little jewels where he'll just tell you what he's up to. And you kind of have that here in verse 13. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan. Lot settled in the cities of the valley, moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now he's got this point he's trying to make. Okay, here's his point. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. In other words, okay guys, I'm setting up that Lot made this choice and it's gonna cause some problems. This comment by Moses sets up two mini-narratives that continue for a while. In fact, they continue for quite a while into the further part of Genesis. But the author's point's important. Lot's going to have some consequences here. It was not immoral to have bad neighbors. There was nothing inherently wrong with Lot going to live by Sodom or live in Sodom. But choosing to live in a bad neighborhood does have some moral implications. And Moses wants us to know that because Moses knows what's coming. This move is going to set some other things in motion. And Moses is just pointing that out. It wasn't really smart for Lot to do this. He doesn't say Lot sinned by moving towards... He doesn't say that. Lot didn't sin by doing this. He did make an unwise choice. And we'll see why. Lot chose to place himself in a very compromising situation. Now, there were advantages. There were all kinds of advantages. I mean, the money by Sodom was going to be awesome. He's got green grass that you can't eat down fast enough with your sheep and camels and cattle. It just keeps growing. It's lush. There is dew there every morning. There are streams flowing into it. The salt sea is right next to it. But there were dangers. And it didn't take a long time to see what would happen next. And so now you have in the ensuing pastures, or passages, I should say, in chapters, what happens kind of with Abraham after this choice is made. And what happens with Lot? So I'm going to take a point to talk about Abraham, but we're going to come back to the Lot story in a couple of moments. First, Abraham grows in influence, power, and faith in God's promises. I mean, he's got basically the bad 
he's got the bad farm. I mean, you know, you've got a lot of wonderful farmland in Canada, but we'd all agree not all farmland is created equal. There's farmland that can produce you know, crops year after year after year, and there's farmland that it's really not good for much except pasture, if that. Abraham got the bad land, but Abraham begins to soar, and Lot's life takes a turn for the worse. Now, the next chapter, which we're not going to read together, it's not perfectly clear as to its purpose. It's a story about warfare. And I believe it's primarily revealed in Abraham's closing statement. So I'm going to read the closing statement. If you've got your Bible open, you can read that as well. Closing statement of chapter 14. There's, a, there's like a war. And then at the end, Abraham says this. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, because Abraham rescued uh, a bunch of people there. He said, I've sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal, a thong, or anything that's yours for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. So remember that, that statement there. What led to that statement? All right, a little history here. A regional conflict in that part of the world had taken place about 14 years before this. So about 14 years before this, there was some sort of squabble in that region, and kings from the east, think a little bit more like uh, ancient Babylon or Shinar, the plain of Shinar where the Tower of Babel was. So think Iraq, that part of the world. Those kings had subjected the small nations that are right around the Dead Sea to them. The Salt Sea, it was called back then. So right around the Dead Sea, you had a group of sort of city-states. They were, they were cities, walled cities, that had kings. So we're going to call them like a Greek city-state before Greece existed. Lot has settled in that subjected region. So you got these kings to the east. They're a little more powerful than these little city-states around the Dead Sea. So they have subjected them. And Lot settles in those little city-states and during that time, he's paying tax to this group of kings from the east. And the primary one is called Chedorlaomer. So if you're pregnant, you got a little boy coming, great boy's name, Chedorlaomer. All right, teachers will love you for that one. For 12 years, they're paying taxes primarily to Chedorlaomer, who's the leader of these kings of the east. In year 13, all these cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, uh, Zoar, and a couple others, there's five key cities there, they decide, you know what, we're kind of tired of paying taxes. And we're going to create a little tax revolt. And we're just not going to give them what they're asking for. So that was year 13. Year 14, the army comes from the east. And the four kings enacted a scorched earth policy over the whole region. They hit all of these little city-states. They didn't come for taxes. They came for everything. If you're not going to pay us taxes... We're taking everything. We're taking you. We're taking your wives. We're taking your children. We're taking everything you own. And they overran all of these little cities around the Dead Sea. And then they headed back sort of north, northeast. Lot and his family were taken in these battles. Somebody escapes, goes up to west of the Jordan Valley. They find Abraham, and they tell Abraham about this. Now, Abraham is not a nation. Abraham is just a dude with a lot of dudes who work for him. But he's not a nation at this point. But Abraham has, I believe, 318 men, they said, who were sort of trained men. So 318 guys who could handle themselves in, in a violent situation. Let's just put it that way. 
And so 300, I think it's 318, but over 300 of his best men get together and they track this army and all the plunder they've taken. And they hit them in the middle of the night as they've headed north and they destroy this army. They recover the peoples that had populated multiple cities. They took them back. They bring them back to these city-states that they lived in and he recovered Lot and his family. That's why we have this story because Lot had been taken captive. Abraham, Uncle Abraham, rescues Lot. Now, before this incident, God had reaffirmed his promise to Abraham. After Abraham and Lot separate, what's the first thing God does? He says, Lot's going down to to the east, to Sodom and Gomorrah, Zoar, and the cities of the plain. He says, I want you to know, look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, look to the west. It's all going to be yours, Abraham. Everything's going to be yours. In fact, your progeny are going to be like the dust of the earth. If you can count the dust, that's what your descendants are going to be like. Later on, I think he says it's like the sands of the sea. So God is is continuing to reinforce that Abraham is going to be this great nation. It's going to all belong to you. And in my opinion, in chapter 14, Abraham is starting to believe that. He's just seen God. Remember, right before this, where had Abraham been? He went down to Egypt, took his beautiful wife with him. And I don't say that because I'm just trying to be, you know, generous. The Bible says she was so pretty that Abraham lied and said it was his sister. Again, I don't know how that goes over with your wife. You know, oh, no, she's not my wife. She's my sister. You know, but anyway. So Abraham had just been to Egypt with this beautiful woman that he's got an arrangement with. She was his half-sister. But she, he said, wherever we go, we're going to tell everyone you're my sister so people don't kill me and try to take you. If I'm your brother, they'll just reward me because they'll want to date you. And so that was sort of the plan. So he goes down to Egypt. Remember, Pharaoh took Sarah into his harem, and then a plague broke out on his whole household. Pharaoh learned what was going on, pushed Sarah right back to Abraham, said, why on earth would you do this? Abraham has seen now God's going to protect him. God's going to protect his wife. God has now appeared to Abraham multiple times, at least audibly. He's heard this audible voice, and we believe he's seen some glimpse of the glory of God. Abraham is starting to get the sense, you know what? This God who called me has got my back, and it's possible, if he's going to keep his promises, it's possible that I can't lose because how else would God fulfill his promises? So Abraham is starting to think, if God is for real, this battle can't be lost. And this emboldened him, I believe. So he grabs these 300 and some guys that are a part of his whole clan and he chases this army north in the middle of the night. They've probably been drinking a lot after their successful battles. They run through the tents of the enemy and they slay them. And he recovers the people and the plunder. Comes back to the cities of the plain with them. And a local king, priest, blesses him. Verses 19 and 20. Now this is of interest to some of you. I know some of you, we've had conversations about this. There's a a priest, his name is Melchizedek. He's actually a king of a local city-state. King of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, so he also believed in the true God. And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham actually tithed to this priest. Some people believe that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I don't believe that, but I understand the thinking. And then, right after that, the king of Sodom offers Abraham all the plunder. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, give the people to me, take the goods for yourself. 
And this is when Abram makes this statement. He said to the king of Sodom, I've sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that's yours for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. Abram is saying, I'm in God's hands. My future is in God's hands. I want nothing from the world. I do not want the world to be able to say, I'm the reason Abraham made it. I'm the reason Abraham is rich. Abraham is growing in every way, in influence, in power, and faith in God's promises. Lot's choice, on the other hand, continues to harm him. He'd separated from Abram, now he's got to be rescued. But it gets a lot worse. Third point, Lot's choices lead to a legacy of moral compromise. He became the world he lived in. Now this is a sad story, but I don't know that there's a better story in the Bible about getting next to the world and being influenced by it. Lot returned to Sodom with his family. They lived there. Now eventually God did judge that city for their immoral behavior. But when that happens, we see the impact of Lot's choices. This mini-narrative is not just about Sodom and Gomorrah or the other cities of the plain there. It's about Lot. Now Moses, when he put this together, was not thinking, okay, Pastor Paul's only going to have X amount of minutes to preach this sermon, and so I've got to sort of put all the story together. Moses isn't thinking about Canadian pastors preaching Genesis. So he assumed Abraham's whole life story would be read at once, which we're not going to do today because it's Father's Day and I love you. So preaching often sort of separates stories that really belong together. And this mini-narrative isn't really finished until you get through chapter 19. So if you read this whole story, you'd read chapter 13 through chapter 19, which, again, I'm going to spare you that. But later on in chapter 19, as the city falls, as Sodom, Gomorrah, the other cities of the plain are judged, three visitors come to Lot's house. We know them as messengers from God. They seem to be angelic visitors. And Lot's neighbors want to have sex with these three visitors. And Lot protected the visitors from the men of his city. Hospitality in the ancient world involved physical protection, which leads me to the saddest passage in all of Scripture. One of them. As this is going on in chapter 19, Lot says to the men of Sodom who are trying to grab these three individuals, he says, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they've come under the shelter of my roof. That's hard to read. I'm a father of three daughters. I go to prison over that stuff. Three individuals that Lot is protecting in Eastern hospitality, meaning he needs to protect them, and he wants to protect them so much that he's willing to give his two virgin daughters to an angry mob because he's elevating Eastern hospitality rules over the virtue of his own children. That's messed up at a level, I don't know that I can say any more about it than to tell you that's what happened. 
Look at how much moving to Sodom has influenced Lot. In Sodom's aftermath, they're fleeing the city. Lot flees the city with his daughters because his wife was killed in that because she kept looking back at the city. That's a whole other issue. She was in love with the city of Sodom. His daughters and Lot escape, and they're in a nearby cave. We're going to talk about this in another story. We actually have, this is very interesting, we found the charred ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, they're dig sites in the, in the Middle East. They are dig sites, and they're charred just like the scriptures describe. There's a fault line there, and so it looks like there was some sort of a, a shower where the fault line opened, and it was on fire, and we have a charred city of Sodom and Gomorrah that we could go to a dig today and look at, and maybe I'll show you pictures when we get to that point. It's pretty fascinating, but we have the history of that city in a dig. So they escape the destruction of that city. They get up into this cave, and these daughters who've been going to, you know, they've been going to the liberal churches in Sodom all these years now. And they've been going to the youth group at the liberal church in Sodom. You know, there's no, there's no representation of the true God in Sodom. The daughters are thinking, okay, it looks like the world has been destroyed. I think they thought it was maybe more regional than local or more global than local. And so they say, well, we got to carry on this family line. So let's get daddy drunk tonight and you sleep with him tonight, and we'll get him drunk tomorrow night, and I'll sleep with him, and we'll continue the family line through our father. That happened. Two different nights, his different daughters slept with him. Two tribes came from those relationships. The Moabites and the Ammonites came from that relationship. Sodom had rubbed off of this whole family and destroyed it. And by the time its story is over, nobody's really following the true God because they pitched their tents in a place where they just couldn't resist the morals and the values of the world around them. It wasn't a sin to live in Sodom. It wasn't a sin. If it's a sin to live in Sodom, you've got to figure out a way to get off this planet because we live in Sodom. It wasn't a sin to live in Sodom. What's Wrong is to not understand with wisdom the influence that it has on us and to fight it. A couple apps as we close. Number one, where have I pitched my tent? Abraham and Lot, look at all the options. They're up there on that hill, and Abraham says, you know what, Lot, whatever you want, I'll go the other direction. Lot chose to live the cities of the Jordan Valley. He chose compromise. The choice wasn't morally wrong. The choice was unwise. When Jesus talks about this kind of thing, Jesus talks about it, the apostles talk about it. When Jesus talks about this kind of thing, what does he say? You are to be in the world, but not what? Of it. Jesus recognized we're going to have a proximity to the world because guess what? We live on planet Earth, and that's the world. There's going to be a moral climate in the world that will always be in opposition to the values of the kingdom of God. Jesus knew that. He said, you're to be in the world, but not of it. It's proximity versus being characterized by it. Proximity versus practice. Jesus knew it. And the goal of the kingdom of heaven is to always to be a light on the hill, showing the world what it's like to follow the true God. Be in the world, but don't become the world. The Apostle Paul put it a different way. He said in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, be not conformed to the world. Don't be pressed into its mold, but be transformed. Metamorphosis, where we get our sort of the 
caterpillar to butterfly word. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. God is to make us new people in our minds and in our actions. But there will always be this pressure to be pressed into the world's mode, and it's going to be very hard for us to resist it. Jesus warned about it. Paul warned about it. John warned about it. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Where's your tent? How hard, especially if you're young, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry you're growing up in this world, because it's tough, and it's tough to raise kids today, harder than ever in history. How hard are you trying to fit in? How hard are you trying to fit in? Because we're not meant to. No, I'm not saying we're meant to be obnoxious and every time we see something we don't like, we, we say something. I'm not talking about being sort of a Christian jerk and some Christians kind of do that. I'm not that guy. I mean, I might be a Christian, I might be a jerk in some way, but not in that setting, okay. But, you know, there's some Christians who anytime they're in a worldly setting and they see something they don't like, they're like, oh, that is so wrong. And you know what? You're not going to help your cause or Jesus' cause by just being that person who is difficult in every situation. Nobody likes that guy, not even Christians. But there is a time to stand up. And there is a time to respectfully say, you know what? Me and my family, we just disagree. And if you're going to keep doing this, we just can't be here. We can't be part of this. You know, we can't have our kids in this school because of this. Or we can't have our kids in this place because of this. We can't have our kids in this activity. There's a time to just take a stand. How hard are you trying to fit in? Because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. You've got to pick your moments, but it's everywhere. Second, can I accurately identify the world's agenda? Some of us are a little naive. But, and I'm not saying there's, you know... There's a group of people all trying to figure out what's next for us. But i got to tell you, sometimes there's kind of a group of people trying to figure out what's next for us, but not every time. I don't want to be paranoid, but there is an agenda in the world. And you see it in Hollywood. You see it in places like that. You see it in government politics at times. Christian author and speaker Sky Jathani wrote about his kindergarten-aged daughter's homework assignment. Help your child identify as many logos as possible. Jathani said that without hesitating, she identified Pizza Hut, Target, and Lego. That's a good start. At home, she collected the logos of Disney, Jell-O, and Goldfish Crackers. Later, while drinking a glass of water, she proudly said, That says Ikea. And that is sad that a child can identify Ikea, because I never want to be in an Ikea store, ever. That's a whole other issue. All right. The tour to get to the one thing you... Never mind. All right. She spotted the tiny logo and printed on the bottom of the glass. Jathani reflected, should it scare me that my five-year-old had memorized more corporate brands than Bible verses or names of relatives? Also scary was the fact that no one taught her to identify logos. We didn't have corporate logo flashcards drills at home. Zoe internalized those logos simply by living for five years in a brand-saturated culture. This sort of brand marketing has been so effective that the average 10-year-old has already memorized between 300 and 400 brands. When these children become adolescents, each with an average of $100 of disposable cash to spend every week, they'll select from these brands to construct their identities, identities that can eat, drink, smoke, drive, play, ride, and wear. In fact, I don't have time, but I had an article from advertisers that basically say they want to own your little children for life. And I mean, it's like, they, they're not trying to hide it. They just say, we want to own them when they're little all the way through adulthood. We want to own them. 
The spiritual value of shopping is not lost on marketers. Douglas Atkins, author of The Culting of Brands When Customers Become True Believers, states plainly that brands are the new religion. My point is this. There's an agenda by all kinds of people to pull you into what they want to be important to you. And can you see it? Because even the church is getting swept up in it. If you look at what's going on in church uh, denominations today, I could give you multiple examples of how the church is just trying to keep up with the world, just doing everything it can to fit in. Well, the world says this is important, so we better get up to date. And eventually, we have nothing to offer the world. Because it's us. Which brings us to my last question, what is my ultimate authority for how I live my life? This shouldn't be hard for the church to figure out. And it shouldn't be, it's, it's almost interesting how in the church world today, if you actually believe the Bible, you're, you're starting to get like gold stars for actually believing it. I don't think you should get gold stars in my job for actually believing this. It's kind of like why we did this in the first place. Sadly, we're headed to a world where that's more difficult to find. What is my authority for how I live my life? And if it's not the Bible, in its simplest, plainest sense, trying to find the author's intent on the pages of Scripture the way you would read any other piece of literature in history, trying to interpret that accurately as it was understood by its hearers, bring it into a modern context and say basically the same thing. If it's not that, we will have our feet firmly planted in midair. We will not have a foundation for our lives other than whatever the world tells us to have. What is my ultimate authority for how I live my life? Well, happy Father's Day. This is not a feel-good sermon. Sorry about that, dads. But it's the world we live in. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for these examples that we see in the Old Testament, these stories that are meant to help us understand how Abraham grew in faith and these stories that we're intended to learn from. And I pray that in a world that wants us all to conform to its standards and its values, that we would be people who are in it but not of it, who are graciously able to push back, graciously able to, to defend a different view of reality where we believe there is a God in heaven and he has spoken and we love everybody but we really don't agree and we're not going to compromise. Help us to be those kinds of people. Help us to be like Abraham, growing in our faith, making the right choice. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect, or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again, and God bless you.